Good morning. This is lesson 12, and I forgot to prompt uh, Hampton as to what I'm going to do, but as soon as that thing fires up, I have a couple of pictures for you that aren't in your, uh, in your notes. We were talking about uh, cruise ships last week, and I thought you ought to know that not all cruises go as well as, as you might think, and there's uh, one example. Here's another one. I suspect that you would be hanging close to your seat on that. And the third one is uh, that scene that went on YouTube this week. You remember where they had the, the video of all the tables sliding back and forth across? Apparently, the cruise industry wasn't too excited about this video because uh, it probably dampened some people's enthusiasm. But just to show you in the next slide that uh, not all of life is a smooth cruise, I went out to the uh, website for the Voice of the Martyrs, and uh, you will find that's just a snap of one uh, screen of the kinds of things that are going on, and we might call those rough seas, if you like, in terms of living the Christian life. And I think we're very insulated uh, from what's going on in other parts of the world and the degree to which other believers are suffering uh, because of their faith in the Lord Jesus. Jesus was always clear in his presentation of the gospel. He was always clear that following him was going to have a, a high price. Remember he said in Luke 9 and verse 23, if you're going to follow him, you must take up your cross daily and follow him. And then in later in, in chapter 9, remember there are these people that come and say, I want to follow you, but they all had kind of excuses. Jesus began by saying the birds have their nests and whatever. Son of man doesn't have anywhere to lay his head. If you're going to follow me, Jesus said, then it's going to be tough. And you know that many uh, bailed out, if so to speak, to use John's analogy this morning, uh, bailed out before it even started. When you look at, at the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, and you in particular focus on that second soil, the, the soil that, that's rocky, that has no depth, uh, you notice that our Lord Jesus says that those people quickly uh, responded in a positive way to the message of the gospel until affliction and uh, persecution came their way. Interestingly, those exact two words that are used in our text, they're actually three words, but the, the main two words that are found in our text are found there. And it was on account of those things that those people said, this is not for me, it's not going my way. In John chapter 6, in those verses, you see our Lord Jesus dealing with a group of people who wants to forcibly make him king. But when he starts to speak about his suffering and death, it's a whole new picture. And remember, the story ends with many of those who were following him uh, abandoned Jesus and never again, so far as we're told, to follow him. That third set of verses in Luke 19 and Luke 23 is the contrast between those who are heralding Jesus at his triumphal entry and so excited they want to get on, so to speak, they want to get on board for the cruise. But when they understand that Jesus is not there to overthrow Rome immediately and, and uh, to set up an earthly kingdom that fit their description, then that's when they are the ones who cry out, uh, forget it, crucify him. 
And in Matthew chapter 24, verses 9 and 10, when Jesus is talking about the last days, he said, when the dark days come and difficulty and persecution comes your way, many will fall away from the faith because it is too much for them. So all of that is saying to us, if we're going to be serious about our walk with Jesus Christ, then we have to take suffering seriously. It is not something where we can opt out and get on that wonderful cruise ship and have the prosperity gospel lived out in our lives. It is a life that is going to involve adversity and persecution if indeed we are following our Lord Jesus. The Thessalonian saints knew that well. They knew it well because Paul came to them battered and bruised from Philippi. They saw the marks, I believe, of his faith uh, born on his body because of his faithfulness to the gospel. He warned the Thessalonians that if they embraced the gospel, they were embracing the suffering that came with it. And you remember, they did embrace the gospel. And Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, they did indeed uh, suffer for their faith and yet were joyful in the midst of all of that. And so they thrived in the midst of their adversity. And that's described to us not only in 1 Thessalonians, but in those verses that lead the way for us into our text, uh, verses 1 through 4, which is why I asked that those be read as well, that the saints at Thessalonica were persevering in their faith and they were enduring much uh, tribulation and adversity in their lives, but joyfully so. But Paul realized that that brought with it dangers. And in chapter 3, he says he was concerned because he could not be with them. He knew things were going in a difficult way for them, and he wanted to be sure that his efforts had not been in vain. In other words, he wanted to be sure they were not bailing out of their faith. So he sends Timothy. Timothy comes back with a glowing report, and Paul says that overjoyed them to know. And so when we come now to our text, uh, in primarily verses 5 through 12 of Second Thessalonians chapter 1, we're really looking at the issue of the sovereignty of God and the second coming as a solace for those uh, who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look at his purpose for persecution and suffering in the lives of his saints. A few observations to begin with. Three terms are used for suffering. One of those terms is very specific in terms of religious persecution. That is just basically its exclusive use. The other terms are broader, and they are talking about a broader range of suffering. And, and I would say from a distance, I've not been there myself, but I would say that many people who are especially an unpopular minority, there are, there are a number of ways in which they will face direct difficulty. They may get thrown in jail. Uh, there may be various things that happen. But there also is just a general difficulty in life. For example, if, if you had a situation where somebody was going to burglarize your house or do you bodily harm, if you were in some countries where the police were dominated by a faith other than Christianity and you called the police, don't expect help. 
you will not get. You are outside the system, and therefore all of the benefits that come with being inside the cultural system are, are withdrawn from you, and that's not just always in the form of open persecution. Notice, too, and, and you, it may not be apparent, depending on the translation, but as the scholars will point out that, that the language that Paul uses in this text is often language that's been borrowed from the Old Testament in the, in the Greek translation, the Septuagint. So he'll use words or phrases. In some instances, it looks like a quote. In other instances, it looks like a kind of strange coincidence. And all I can say is this. There, it, Paul is, is like a sponge. And when he spends time, as he obviously did, in the Old Testament scriptures, it got to the point where, where he just began to utilize the, the words that he was so familiar with that he used biblical words to describe the things that he was talking about because they were so familiar to him. So all I'm really saying is maybe there's a quote here or there, but lots of times Paul is just soaking. Isaiah 66, Isaiah 2, some of the Psalms, he's soaking there, and it's just like he's wringing out the sponge a little bit. And uh, we should appreciate his uh, familiarity and love for the Old Testament. When it speaks of righteous judgment in verse 5, as, as my translation, the Net Bible does, this is evidence of God's righteous judgment. There is a way in which we tend to read that meaning uh, punishment. And it may well mean that. But but actually the sense of righteous judgment here, I think, is used in a more general way as it frequently is. The reason is it is God's righteous judgment that brings blessing to believers. And it is God's righteous judgment that brings eternal uh, destruction to unbelievers. And both of those are here in this text. So what he's speaking of is God in his righteous judgment, which will appear at his second coming, it will be executed at his second coming, that righteous judgment manifests itself in one way toward believers and in another way toward unbelievers, and both of those are found in our texts. So it is... Um, it is the saints' suffering that ends at the second coming. And I want to just make sure that we're clear on that. He's saying we're not going to have this wonderful, glorious, trouble-free life the moment we trust in Jesus. He says the trials and troubles of this life will end when Jesus comes. And and I think there again, we've got to get our minds wrapped around the fact that suffering is not the abnormal circumstance, it's the normal one. We've been living in an abnormal time, in an abnormal world. But trust me, you'll find what normality means before long. Uh, he gives more attention to the fate of unbelievers here than he does believers. Uh, he describes the, the, the relief that will be given to believers. But at this moment in time, he's really spending more time describing what God is going to do to make things right with respect to unbelievers. And I should say this, as I read this text, it looks to me like unbelievers and persecutors are interchangeable or put it, to put it differently. I believe when difficult times come, 
And and when one is living a life that is faithful to the gospel, I don't see a a large group of people who are unbelievers and, and who are live and let live people. I see unbelievers as picking up those rocks. I I guess I would say, when you look at the cross of Jesus and you see those people who are hurling abuse at our Lord, don't you basically see everybody? I know the disciples may be standing off at a distance and they're not really into the game, but virtually you see everybody. The, 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 The men hanging beside Jesus, the soldiers, everybody is after Jesus and, 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 uh, and as it were, persecuting him. And I believe that's the way it will be, is that you won't see a large group of, of uh, accepting people saying, well, that's their, they can have whatever belief they want. There won't be pluralism, folks, when real persecution comes. And there are some things that are interesting, just as you compare the second coming of our Lord in 1 Thessalonians with what we see in 2 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, you have the trumpet call and the shout of the archangel. And in 2 Thessalonians, you have this blazing fire. In 1 Thessalonians, you have our Lord Jesus coming accompanied by his saints. In 2 Thessalonians, you have the Lord coming accompanied by his fiery angels. <laughs> yeah, this is real clout. Um, and then you've got in 1 Thessalonians, the, the, the discussion about those uh, believers, what will happen at the second coming for those who are dead in Christ. And then you have, of course, those who are the living in Christ. But when you come to 2 Thessalonians, the focus now is on the outcome of his second coming. What happens to men as a result of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ? And that's where Paul is going as he has these verses for us. So let's talk about the purposes for persecution and suffering as it relates to unbelievers. Look at the basis for their condemnation. I would call the first one unbelief. It says they do not know God. Secondly, disobedience to the gospel. Unbelief and disobedience. I'm going to pause there for just a second because I'm not sure in the way in which we market the gospel in a slick way, I'm not so sure that we come across in ambassadorial terms where we have a message from the king (laughs) to a people who needs to accept or reject his rule. And so I, I fear that in the in the slicking up of the gospel and making it look appealing, and in fact, the misrepresentation of the gospel where we present a, a, a God who is wringing his hands, hoping for a few takers on his offer, and, and we sell it like soap, I don't get the feeling that we're making it clear to people the gospel is God's command. Now, I know you, you can't just pound people over the head with it. But the gospel is not just an offer, it is a command. And when we reject the gospel, we disobey it. So it is disobedience to the gospel. And that's the way he describes it uh, in this text. And it also involves the persecution of the saints. Now, it's very interesting. Unbelievers are are recognized and tagged on the basis of this 
persecution. As I said earlier, I believe that there isn't going to be a neutral group of people as much as unbelievers are going to be of one mind and one heart when it comes to dealing with those who profess faith in our Lord Jesus. And and you could just see inklings of that, even in our day. You take the, the preacher down in Florida who's going to burn the Koran and whatever, and, and here are people shaking their heads and, yeah, that's Christians, you know, and we're all getting thrown in the same pot, and therefore it's going to get, in my opinion, it's going to get hot for all of us, and they manifest that by their rejection of us. And that's a pretty uh, scary thing. But let me say this. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he says, then they will be saying peace and safety. What is it that makes unbelievers feel so secure at the time when their judgment is at hand? I'll make you one suggestion. I believe that it's going to be a time of great persecution toward the church. And it's going to appear that God doesn't do anything about it. So think about that if you're an unbeliever. If you've rejected the gospel, rejected Jesus Christ, and now you are actively persecuting Christians, and nothing happens to you for doing it. You say to yourself, like like the psalmist uh, says in Psalm 37 or Psalm 73, well, where's God? He isn't doing anything. Second Peter chapter 3, where's the promise of his coming? I'm not worried about anything. Everything's going the way it was. God's not doing anything about unbelief and rebellion and disobedience. So it seems. And that gives an added sense of confidence and belligerence that I see ballooning as the last days come upon us. Their penalty is described as payback. And the reason, and it's literally that word, to give back. You need to understand that when God punishes the wicked, he gives them back what they have given Now, you may react one way or the other to an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but that kind of justice says the punishment is appropriate to the crime. And so our Lord gives back to men in terms of what they have given out toward him and in particular toward those who are his people. It's eternal destruction away from God's presence and from his glory. Interesting that while you had those, those flaming angels, the picture is not here given to us as a picture of, of flaming fire and the pit. I'm not denying the reality of that picture. I'm saying that when you get to the core of what God's judgment looks like on the, on the wicked, the core of that is away from God and away from his glory. Now, doesn't that perfectly fit what heaven is. Heaven is to be forever in God's presence and participating in his glory. So you have those two sides. You're either into the glory of God and the presence of God, or you are separated from it. But that's the way Paul breaks it out in our text. So let's talk about the uh, the, the, the second coming as it relates to believers in our Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, the basis of salvation and blessing is his calling, verse 11, and their belief, verse 12. Two times in verse 12, it talks about they believe, and notice also in verse 10, all who have believed, and you did in effect, believe our testimony. 
So it is, it is belief in our Lord Jesus Christ. I emphasize that because this is a text that is talking about the conduct of Christians. And in a context which says they will be proven worthy of the calling. Let's not be unclear about the fact that it is belief in Christ that saves, not one's behavior that wins his approval. The purpose of persecution is to prepare the saints and prove them worthy of the kingdom of God. God has a beneficial purpose in the suffering that his saints endure. Our suffering is not lost. It brings about in the life of the believer, it brings about a deepening of faith, a deepening of trust. And the example, I guess, would be Psalm 73. Here's the psalmist who, who, who thinks <laughs> he thinks he's on a cruise ship. And, and all of a sudden he starts looking around and he finds out other people, you know, they're on that boat, they're having a great time, but for him it's a storm. And so he says, what's the use? Why do I serve God? Then he sees eternity. And he understands that God is with him in the midst of his adversity. And not only is he with him, but he will be with him for all eternity. And those who are wicked will be apart from him. So now Asaph says, the, it, it's, the, it's the presence of God. It's being with him, the nearness of God, that is my good. Uh, and, and so it's to prepare us. You see that, for instance, uh, in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1. I think I'll refer to that in a minute too. In Romans chapter 5, where it talks about tribulation, works patience, and so on. The difficulties to, of, uh, that God brings into our life are the difficulties to deepen our roots into the soil of faith so that we trust him more and more. That's why God is allowing it in our lives as well as for those unbelievers who are actually demonstrated to be such and worthy of judgment because of their treatment of the righteous. Second coming is punishment for those who have persecuted the saints. And that that's very clear in our text. But it has some very practical applications. And I think the first thing I have to ask you is this. Do you feel guilty when you read a text like this and it looks like the punishment of the wicked is supposed to make you feel good. Does that, do you find a little mental tension with that? That you somehow, you know, there is a sense in which we think, well, the punishment of the wicked in hell ought to motivate me to witness. It certainly should. But isn't there also a sense in which the punishment of the wicked for those who love justice gives you a good feeling? I was driving down Central Expressway. It was probably in one of my old Pintos, so I wasn't even in the competition. But here goes an old classic Lincoln Continental. Oh, it's beautiful. And here comes this kid in a Chevy, and he comes ripping onto the, the freeway, and these guys floor it and take off. I sit back, and all I can do is watch. These guys take off, and all of a sudden, for whatever reason, the guy in a Lincoln backs off, and the guy in a Chevy goes bolting right over the top of this hill into a radar trap. Now, I have to tell you, when I drove by that, I felt good. <laughs> Wouldn't you? You know, you, you say to yourself sometimes, where are the police when you need them? Isn't there a sense in which we're relieved that somehow something has been done? I, I, think, I think that there is a way in which we ought to feel good. And 
I believe it also is the basis for us doing what Paul has already commanded. Remember in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he says in verse 15, See to it that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek that which is good. Romans chapter 12, he talks a lot about not seeking revenge. How does the believer deal with that? I'll tell you the answer. The reason why I do not have to have justice at my hand is because God's justice is perfect. He knows attitudes. He knows motivations. He knows all the things that go on. And I trust that God is going to make things right. Now, if you think about the Holocaust, if you think about 9-11, if you think about some of the atrocities that have gone on, if there is not some consequence beyond life, then justice has not been meted out. Hell is a moral necessity. And, and I believe that ought to comfort the Christian to know that God is going to make things right when he returns. It will be the second coming of our Lord that gives us that rest and relief from the difficulties and adversities of life and brings us, of course, into the blessings of his kingdom. Notice also the second coming is where God is glorified both in his saints and by them as I see it. So he's glorified as he works and glorifies himself in his church and then he's glorified as his church gives glory to him as you see in in, in Revelation where the, the people of God are proclaiming the glory of God that brings him a great glory. All right, Uh, I see a little bit of a problem, and I thought this is probably as good a place as any to bring it up. Have you ever noticed when you come to the Scriptures that there are certain texts which talk about people going to heaven or hell in terms of their works? Daniel chapter 12, the resurrection. There's those who do good and those who don't. John chapter 5, Jesus talks about that in terms of, of the works that people do. Jesus says in Matthew 5, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, you're not going to make it into the kingdom. So it, it, there's some kind of focus on works. Romans chapter 2, it talks again about those who are doing right or those who are not in terms of whether you go to heaven or to hell. Revelation chapter 20 and chapter 21 again describes people in terms of their deeds. So the question is, if salvation is by faith alone, then why is it that these texts talk about salvation in this context of doing good or not doing good? How do you deal with those? Well, try this on for size. One, when we get to heaven, there are going to be rewards. And rewards are related to works, are they not? Rewards are related to how we respond to the circumstances God brings our way. Now, we know ultimately that nothing we do, we do that's good, we do of ourselves, but we do it as God works in us. We understand that, but there still is that element of choices that are made by believers. Godly works actually precipitate the persecution. In other words, in this text, if he didn't talk about the goodness that is manifested in the lives of his saints, then it wouldn't make sense. But it's it's the cruel treatment and persecution of good and godly people that shows them to be worthy of God's condemnation. 
So you see that, for instance, in 1 Peter, where uh, Peter talks about living uh, in godly lives in a way so that when men stand before God in the judgment, God will judge them for the way they have dealt with uh, his people, the way they have dealt unjustly with his people. First Peter chapter 4, Peter saying to Christians, you wonder why you're suffering? Well, you used to be like the world, and you used to do all these things, and now you've thrown them into a turmoil. They don't know what to do with you because you're no longer doing the bad stuff they do, and that's why they persecute you. They don't like goodness. They reject it, and so... The good works of the believer is the instrument which causes uh, the unbeliever to react. I'm going to come back to this in a minute, but it's the goodness of Jesus, the goodness of Jesus that terrified the men who rejected him. Remember when Jesus cast the, the, the demons into the, into the swine and they plunged into the sea? What did the people say? Please leave. Can you imagine that? Please leave. Goodness is terrifying to the wicked. And that's why you see the works of the godly are instrumental in provoking, as it were, the ungodly to what they do. And that proves they are worthy of divine judgment. Works are an evidence of faith. Works are an evidence of faith. They are not the basis of faith. They are the evidence of faith. John the Baptist sees all these people coming down for baptism. And when he gets to these scribes at Ferris, he says, Oh, hold on there, partner. Bring forth fruits that are worthy of repentance. He recognized the hypocrisy of making a claim and yet not living a life that is consistent with it. And so he goes on and then describes some of the ways. You who have two uh, uh, outfits, then you ought to share one. If you're a soldier, you ought not to use your authority to extort money from people. So it is expected that faith will manifest itself in a different kind of life. Hebrews chapter 11, the faith chapter, right? How does the author of Hebrews demonstrate the faith that is there in the believer by telling you what they did. So he equates faith worked itself out in this way for this individual. Faith manifests itself in in works. But here's my favorite part. If we have any concern at all that there's too much emphasis on works in this text, then we need to finish the chapter. Because look what Paul has to say in those two concluding verses, uh, verses 11 and, and 12. He says, and in this regard, by the way, let me just go back and read verse 5 to you for a minute. This is evidence of God's righteous judgment to make you worthy of the kingdom of God. Now in verse 11, and in this regard, we pray for you always that our God will make you worthy of his calling and fulfill by his power your every desire for goodness and every work of faith, that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our Lord, of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So if he is talking about someone being shown worthy, the way Paul ends it is to pray that God will make us worthy. Where does he think worthiness comes from? It comes from God. 
And that's why Paul prays that he would demonstrate and make the saints worthy of that which he has promised uh, for them. Paul, Paul prays that God will, with his power, enable the saints to do those things which are good, those things which they desire. There's a little question about who desires it, whether it's they or God. But if they're, if they're in sync with God, then what God desires in them and what they desire ought to be the same. And he prays that God would bring to fruition what they desire. And then he prays that God would take their faith and cause it to bring forth fruit. And that all is the work of God not the work of men. And then notice where it goes. Where does the glory go? The glory goes to God so that God may receive the glory as he works and has glorified himself in the church, as his church glorifies him. Then God receives the glory. That's where it rightly ought to be. That's the focus. This is a God-centered text as all Bible texts are. It's a God-centered text because it's God who makes us worthy. But he also calls us to live in a manner that is worthy of our calling. And it's all by God's grace. That's the way he ends it. He says, according to the grace of our, of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. God is glorified through his grace. If there's any question about works versus faith or man's part versus God's part, it all falls over to God in the sense of the ultimate cause of of salvation and of growth. Okay, let's talk about a few things. I've never heard a prosperity preacher preach this text. If you're a prosperity preacher, you got a lot of thin texts to go on, but it won't be here. How would you possibly tell people that everything is just going to be ducky and peachy and and smooth sailing through the Christian life? You won't get it from this passage. You won't get it from Paul's life. You won't get it from Jesus. You won't get it anywhere except from the prosperity preachers who pick and choose here and there a little text. This is the reality, my friends. This is the reality of what being a Christian is like. And Paul is trying to show that it is because God has purposed it that way, it achieves his ends. I think about uh, the sovereignty of God and the suffering, and I would say suffering is for our good and his glory. And then I, and then I thought about it. I ran out of space on your notes. His glory is our good. Is that not right? His glory is our good. And so whatever it is that brings glory to God is what is good for us, and we can bask in that. And suffering is a part of that in our lives, which brings glory to him. Uh, I want to talk about prophecy and prayer for a minute. Isn't it interesting that he knows what's what's going to take place? In a sense, verses 5 through 10 are a description of what's going to happen at the second coming. And he, and he, and he knows that God is going to sanctify his church and glorify himself in it. But then in verses 11 and 12, he turns around and prays for the things which he's already said are going to happen. Now, a lot of people would say, why waste your breath? God already knows. God's already purposed. 
prophecy and the awareness of what God is set to do and will undoubtedly and invariably, without any difference of uh, between his plan and the outworking, that is set, but that becomes the basis for our prayers. Now, the classic illustration in the Old Testament would be Daniel chapter 9. Here's Daniel reading Jeremiah's prophecy. And he, and he understands that the 70 years is going to be the time of the captivity. And there's probably lots of them. That's why you hesitated. I pick, pick one out of the sky. But in that instance, Daniel knows what the future holds. And that prompts him to pray that God will, uh, will do exactly that. Anybody who says God doesn't answer my prayers, maybe they should start praying for that which he has assured them is going to happen rather than what they would like to happen. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here, and it is what we should be doing. Payday someday, heaven or hell. When you shake the gospel down to the bare <laughs> essentials of it, doesn't, doesn't this kind of spell it out? That one has a choice to make. And it's either a choice of obeying God, obeying the gospel, and believing in, in his provision of salvation in Jesus, or of rejecting it. That Those are the two choices. And the two alternatives then are forever apart from his glory and forever basking in his glory. I was thinking about this, maybe put in a different way, but when you look at this text and it says the suffering of the righteous is going to end up for the benefit of the righteous and it's going to end up for the for the uh, condemnation of the wicked i thought to myself where is that best personified in jesus in jesus he lived righteously and people had a choice to make when he proclaimed that he was the way that god had provided for men's salvation they had to make a choice about whether they would accept God's goodness in Jesus or whether they would reject it. And so when you look at what God condemns men for, basically he condemns them on the same principle. And that is, what have you done with my perfect son? Not imperfect Christians now. My perfect son who made a perfect sacrifice, you either accept the gift of his sacrifice and the atonement he's made, or you reject it. You reject his goodness. And that becomes the basis on which your eternal future is determined. Heaven or hell, those are the two choices. Well, I already said this before. Hell is a moral necessity. Some people just don't like to talk about hell, but there are too many things that have gone unpunished in this life, and a just God will always bring about that which is appropriate to the responses and the actions of men. So back to the cruise ship and the battleship. And I, I thought of a few more. This is thanks to Scotty, who didn't email me this week, so I had to do it on my own, man. All right. Uh, here's some things to just think about. Self-indulgence or personal sacrifice. Generally speaking, when you go on the cruise, folks, you know, it's the self-indulgence mode. People don't gain, on the average, seven pounds in a week. 
because they've been sacrificing. Yeah, I know there's the workout place, folks. I saw the workout place. I walked right by it on the way to the cafeteria. You know, there... Well, anyway, self-indulgence or personal sacrifice. A battleship calls for sacrifice. A cruise ship facilitates self-indulgence. And I'm telling you, I've been there. I'm happy I did. But I'm just telling you, that's the way it is. Mission. Is the mission to serve or be served? Well, I think we know. When we go on a cruise ship, it's to be served. They're standing there waiting for you to do everything for you. On a battleship, you have a place to fulfill. You have something that you were to do. You are serving there. And if you don't think that's true, just look at the living accommodations, folks. When you find your bunk in the battleship, it is not going to be what you found on the top deck of the cruise ship. It won't be all nicely let out. There won't be mints on your pillows and all that stuff. So anyway, to serve or be served. The price we are willing to pay. Well, we're willing to pay a certain price to indulge ourselves, but we're not looking for self-sacrifice in the process. That's why those little pictures I put up on the screen, they're not even willing to pay that price. Not a rough ride out there in the seas. Forget it. The captain. I got to thinking about this. The captain. On the love boat, folks, for example, I never watched that, but I, I mean, I saw it come and go. So on the love boat, the captain is like the chief entertainment. He's the social director. That's the job that John Marr always wanted. Where is John? <laughs> I'm pulling his leg. I know, I know. Anyway, you know, he's a social director. He's there. He's always around schmoozing at the various tables and whatever. He's there to make your life just really warm and fuzzy. Don't plan on that on a battleship, folks. And, and therefore, there are clear lines of authority. They're not there on a cruise ship. Eh, I know the captain's supposed to be in charge. But, I mean, everybody's there taking care of you, making sure everything's going groovy for you. But when you get on a battleship, you have got a mission to fulfill. You have got a task, and you've got a clear chain of authority as to what's going on. That's the way it is in the gospel, I believe. By the way, uh, our relationship to others on board the ship... I've not seen, I've seen one cruise, but I've not heard of, of, of great lasting bonds of relationship from cruise ship. Now, I'm sure that they've been made. But, you know, our next door neighbors served in World War II in some of the bloodiest, most dangerous battles that ever existed. And every year of his life that he was physically able to do it, he met with the guys in his, from his particular group that he had fought with all those battles. There are bonds that are developed in the midst of war that I don't think are, are, are possible in any other context. There is a tightness. And that is why when you go to boot camp, you do, it seems to me, and again, I've not been there, I really felt bad about that once because I really didn't try not to. And then I went to visit my roommate from college who was there on the base and I saw those guys out in the desert in a in a six by six picking up tumbleweed in the desert. I decided maybe it wasn't such a terrible thing that I missed that after all. But when you go to boot camp, as some of my relatives have, you're going to learn to develop a bond of brotherhood, of of teamwork, where you are in it full tilt with your brother in war. And the second is that you understand authority and you don't ask why. 
You do what you're told. You follow your orders. And you have this bond that's together. I think that's the way that it needs to be in the church. No wonder Paul says that they are to recognize their leaders and they are to exercise a certain leadership and they are to receive one another with a kiss of love because there ought to be that kind of camaraderie in the church because we are in a war. We are in a war and we should be, if we're not, we should feel the heat from the unbelieving world for believing in Jesus Christ. And that's why we need to be together. So... This is not a cruise ship, folks. Uh, It's a battleship. And I pray that as we continue uh, in our course, as it were, through Thessalonians, we'll come to see that. It may be that you're on board the cruise ship still. And I would simply say to you, if you've never trusted in Jesus, it's far better to be on the battleship than the cruise ship. But in the end, God is going to reward those who are faithful to him. And God is using the difficulties we face now to deepen the roots of our faith. He's also using the persecution that we endure to prove men worthy of his judgment in the sense of eternal condemnation should it be the case for them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the way in which we can see, as as, uh, others have seen, who describe it in the scriptures for us, that your sovereignty is a great solace for those in suffering. We think of Job, who never really understood how or why, but what he came to understand was that the God that he serves is sovereign, and he is worthy to be worshipped no matter what the outward circumstances. Give us that kind of faith and love and obedience, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.